Welcome to the Clipping Chains podcast from ClippingChains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and hi, how are you? I'm joining you from my camper outside of Las Vegas, deep in the desert. It's a cold and blustery morning, but I'm happy to be doing it. I'm glad to be here. Today on episode 53, I'm pleased to welcome back Lee Kujis, this time as a podcast guest. Some of you may recall the written interview with Lee back in 2020. There is a link in your show notes if you're interested in checking that out, which I recommend you do. And Lee is an elite Australian climber and route developer with multiple 513 plus and 514 first ascents. Not sure what that translates to in Australian grades, but something with a bigger number. And yeah, he's got all that to his name, but most importantly, as it relates to this platform, Lee has managed to climb and develop routes continuously while carving a unique career niche. So a lot of discussion on career here today. In fact, Lee insists that he climbed his best at the peak of his career. So we'll talk about that. To enable a better work and life balance, Lee and his wife, Sam, reconfigured their life to move away from the hustle and bustle of a major metro area. And they resettled in a small mountain community and climbing Mecca in the Blue Mountains of Australia. Furthermore, Lee has been investing since 1998, and so I think he's in a unique position to talk to a lot of us who have not weathered the kind of storms that he has weathered. He has the experience of investing through the back-to-back severe recessions of the dot-com bubble burst right around the year 2000, and then the 2008 financial crisis. For those who are not aware, this was a prolonged decade-plus period where stocks fell over 60% in value from their peak around the year 2000. And Lee was able to stay the course through year after year of poor equity performance, putting him on a path to financial independence today. It's kind of hard to imagine putting money into something that is just year after year falling in value and believing that that will turn up for the best one day. Many of you investing through your first bear market, which began in early 2022, We'll find the beginning of our conversation today useful and inspiring. We got right into it with this idea of investing through tough times. That's what we talk about first. I don't have much today in terms of administrative tasks. Just a reminder to anyone out there, if you're interested in supporting this platform, there is a link in your show notes for Buy Me a Coffee, where you can do a one-time donation or become a member for as little as a dollar a month or $10 a year. So if you want to help support this program, again, there's a link in your show notes or you can find it anywhere on the website. And I really thank you so much. Okay, I won't belabor it any further. Let's get into it with Lee Kujis. This was a fun one. All right, see you on the other side. All right, Lee, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Really well. Thanks for having me. Perfect. I want to jump right in because one thing you mentioned to me offline is that you started investing in 1998, so quite a while ago. And that's a very unique period in history to me, kind of as an investor, because as you well know, and as I've only read about, you know, in the following two years, maybe at about late 2000, we had the dot-com bubble burst, 
And then we had this big market decline, of course, right? It lasted through much of the early to mid-2000s. And then right as we start to kind of claw out of that, here comes 2008, this huge global financial crisis. So just looking real quick off the top of my head, I, I kind of ran the numbers here. The dot-com bubble burst, the S&P 500 fell almost 50%. The global financial crisis, the S&P 500 fell over 50%, about 57% maybe, depending on where you look. What was that like for you starting to save and invest for the first time starting in 1998? Super scary. When I first first started investing, you know, I was pretty much, what, 19, 20. Um, I had a little bit of money. Um, I just put myself through through college. Um, And with the money that was left over as I was starting my first job and was getting my first paychecks, that's when I, that's when I started to, started to invest. And I, and Interestingly, like in the period leading up to that, and my family, you know, I didn't get any of this knowledge from from them. It was it was literally like friends, friends at college, you know, that had some mm-hmm. level of of knowledge, and they were showing me a few things that they'd been doing with their meager cash. And the the period leading up to that was actually really positive. So it was really it was a buoyant period. They were making money, um, you know, and I, I had started saving this money, and they were like, "Oh, you should do it as well." But as soon as you start doing it and the market starts trending negatively, you're thinking, oh, no, <laughs> what am I doing? And it's not, I don't I have very much money and now I'm investing it in this thing and it's going down. So, yeah, it's a scary time. What prompted me to ask you this right off the top is I just received an email maybe just a couple of days ago uh, from a woman who started investing, perhaps influenced by this website, I'm not sure. But she just started investing in 2020. And so, as we know, the first year was pretty strong. 2021 was actually a really good year. As an investor, that would be a, a good start. But then 2022 has just been this downward decline. She emailed me struggling with the idea of, I mean, should I continue this? I'm just losing money. So what made you continue? Why didn't you just take a step away and go do something else with your money? Yeah, well, I guess it's that thing where once you've done the research and you've got the plan, and this will be this is the overarching theory of you know my philosophy for investing is stick try to stick to the plan right. so don't, when it when it gets when it gets tough don't bail so to as a, as an example of what you're what you're talking about as i kind of look across at my at my spreadsheet that sort of tracks the stuff the first 5 years of my career of of investing in from 98 to 2002 there was three really major negative return years mm-hmm. and they they were like up to 22% um, and this is with my contributions so as I'm as I'm pumping money in every month out of my paycheck, um, I look at you know what's happened during the year and it's, it's down twenty two percent. So it's pretty scary. So on, on average, for the five years, it was a flat five years. So imagine you're doing this thing and people are telling you it's good, but then five years later, you actually even though you've been contributing, it's flat. It's gone nowhere. You might as well have just done nothing. That's what you think. Mm. Uh, what, what what am I doing? So you've made no headway. But the worst thing that I could have done at that time would have been to withdraw everything. That would have been the absolute worst thing. The second worst thing would have been to get scared and to stop contributing monthly. You know, I had an automated kind of monthly contribution that was coming out of my paycheck. And the best thing that I did was simply keep contributing blindly because <laughs> throughout all of the negative return years, you're buying at a discount. That's right. And so as things recover and 2003 posted a 26% return, suddenly your net worth takes a major boost because you've just blindly kept contributing during that time of, you know, when everything was actually really cheap to purchase. So you, you rebound out of a negative much more quickly than you would have if you'd done either of the other two things that I mentioned. 
That's right. I mean, because you're buying all, you're getting more shares. You're getting more quantity of shares for the same dollar because they're on discount. And you're setting the stage for a lot of growth if you believe that will inevitably come. But how were you so confident after five years that this system was now was not all of a sudden just broken? How are you believing that this will ever come back? Yeah, and I, I think it, when you're looking at the and you know some of the graphs that show what the market has done over the long term. So the stock market, and you know, we've the Australian stock market is is doing one thing. The the American stock market is often doing you know they they tend to almost cycle between the two markets. But mm. broadly, when you when you sort of look at and it's easy easy now with the internet. I mean, this was almost wasn't pre-internet, but you know, it was the internet was just really starting. But we've got so many resources available to us now, and so many um, ways to interrogate this information ourselves, and like look at this stuff and go, well, you know, this is we've got well over a hundred years of data here that we can see, and I suppose the trap is to go, well, it's different now than it was ten years ago, or it's different because of COVID. It's different than it was twenty years ago during that boom, and you just have to look at what it does historically um, during all of the crazy changes that happen in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the market tends to do and follow this pattern. So if you believe in that, uh, if you can make yourself believe that what happened in the past will happen in the future broadly, um, then that's what I'm talking about. Stick. That's the plan. We know that that's going to happen, but we have to be super patient. And patience is not, you know, when they often with investments, uh, if you sit down with somebody, they'll be trying to gauge your risk appetite. And I remember when I was really young, I was just like all in, all the risk because I just want the huge return. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what it does. So I'm expecting that it might go really badly, but then I'm hoping I'll double my money in the next year. That's, right. that's what it used to be. Uh, that's really changed in the, in the in the later years of investing. But um, that's that that concept of okay well it's going to be really risky that means that always with with a lot of risk is going to come a long investment time frame mm-hmm. to ride out the bumps to ride out the waves it's going to go up and it's going to go down but on balance it's going to go up uh and you got to believe it if you can't make yourself believe that this lifestyle of investing and aiming for fire is going to be really hard for you that's right I agree. Yeah, I mean, you have to know your own psychology. And if you really cannot handle this, I mean, there's no judgment. It's just maybe you need to look at a different asset allocation or, uh, I don't know, maybe not invest at all or or put that on your spouse to handle. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of strategies there. Or like, maybe look at a whole different, I mean, you said, yeah, like, you know, I've got friends that, uh, you know, real estate might be a better mm-hmm. option for right. you. It's it's something that you can see. You can, you can influence it. You could put value into a property. Um, you know, there's other ways of going about it. So everything that I talk, I mean, this is the preface. Everything that I I talk about here is my philosophy. It's for me personally. And it's just one way, you know, the way that has made sense for me. But I think there's lots and lots of ways to achieve, you know, financial independence and Mm -hmm. to move yourself forward. And this is just one way. So it's just ideas for people. And and it's what's, what's worked for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting. Of course, you know, I'm an American, you're an Australian. And so we have a different view of the world and economies. But this this last year of 2022 has been, you know, very interesting because the stock market's down at one point almost 30%. Housing's also been taking a tumble here lately in the US. I'm not sure about in Australia, but I know in Europe it is as well. And man, it, all of a sudden the voices are out, you know, capitalism's over, we're done. But I admire that you've been able to stick with this because I, you know, I just crunched some rough numbers from the high in 2000 
I think your your portfolio might have fallen, you know, from the depths all the way down into the what 2009 March of 2009. I think was the low after the great financial crisis. You might have lost, I don't know, sixty percent of value there. And I'm just impressed that you were able to stay through that and not just believe that, man, this the system is rigged. The system doesn't work. I don't know, but I, I admire you for it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> it's and and to be honest, like it's the when things are going really good. I think maybe, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I hesitate to say, you know, that we all do this, uh, but when things are going really good, it's fun to look at your balances and to see the, mm. you know, the positive, you know, you, you're looking at it every week or you're keeping an eye on it every day. When things are going really badly, you really want stuff to be automated and you really would never want to look at it. And I remember, you know, during that time, you know, being pretty bummed out and just never really wanting to look at it. Maybe, year, you know, a whole year would go by without me wanting to even look at that balance because I'm just, I don't want to see it going down. So I ever, you know, I, I think that's common. Um, I relate. But yes. to, to stay the course and just go, no, I'm just going to do it. And, and to be honest, at that time, my balances, you know, in the first 10 years of investing, the balances compared to today are, are really small. Mm, so even point. though your contributions are going into that that bucket of, of investments um, and they're having a much great, your, your direct contributions are having a much greater impact than, uh, you know, changes in the market value of those investments. So even though they go down quite a lot, your contributions are propping that up. And so it makes it look, uh, you know, if I'm putting in, let's say 400, I, I remember, um, at one time that I was putting in $400 Australian dollars, that's that's about $3.80 American, I think, um, <laughs> 400 Australian dollars in per month. You know, that's what I was doing. Um, and at the time that felt huge, um, uh, but it was, you know, it's just what I could afford was what I was doing. Um, and it it adds up, you know, it adds up in the year and compared to what the market, you know, the, the market changes were doing to the investment, it was... Uh, it was it was hiding some of the losses that I would have been taking during that time. So it was just like, no, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I've decided to do. I'm just going to continue to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you actually captured that because if you're a new investor, I mean, the amount you have invested is much smaller than it will be in the future, ideally, right? Like if you lose 60% of $10,000, that hurts a whole lot less than losing 60% of a million dollars. And so, Absolutely. Yeah, so that's power. That's a good point. I mean, it hurts to lose money no matter how much it is, but the percent, the magnitude of that loss is much less significant in the early days. Yeah, absolutely. And you can kind of hide it by dumping a bit of extra, extra cash in and kind of hide those losses. Whereas, you know, as soon as you have a lot more, dumping that same amount of cash in is going to make like a negligible, negligible difference to the balance. Good point. Okay. So what were your motivations early on? I mean, you said you had some friends doing it. It kind of felt like the right thing to do, but I mean, what was your end goal with this? Yeah. And that's, the, <laughs> that's the tricky thing. I was saving because I didn't know why I was saving. Not really. <laughs> you, you, you know, you start getting, you know, I always, I, maybe it, maybe it's a, I don't know, maybe it's a personality, it's a mindset thing around, um, that you have some money, you shouldn't be spending all of that money. I think, and I'm not sure where that was drummed in from. I don't know that it was necessarily family. Um, maybe it was a bit, um, but you knew that you had to save because there were going to be things that you would want to do in your life that that required dipping into 
you know, dipping into this money. So early on, the first 10 years or whatever, it was maybe it was just around the concept of having a nest egg and growing, uh, you know, not having no money. And, you know, I came from a sort of low middle income uh, family and, you know, there wasn't heaps of money getting around. And, and I think as soon as I was starting to make some money, it became important early to, to be thinking, well, you know, I, I should be I should be growing some of this because there's going to be things I want to do in life, um, and I'm not sure what they are yet. But I should be saving a, a, you know, <laughs> That's right. a component of everything that I make. So yeah, I'm not sure I knew early, and those things started to crystallize later. And now, only in the last sort of five six years, the concept of fire, this this idea that you could be become financially independent, and maybe you know, I, I wouldn't have to you know the traditional retirement age in, in Australia is, is 65, maybe I can retire from work much earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and, and I'll do that off the back of having this, this engine this in, of investments that are going to sit there and essentially replace my paycheck. That came later, that concept that, um, that I might be able to do that, that came much, much later. But in, at the same time, having that money, you know, I can look back and go, oh, why did it go down there? Oh, because I, I took out, you know, a deposit to to buy, you know, my first property with my wife. And, mm, you yeah. know, I, I had that ability to, to do that. I was able to take some money to, you know, assist some family members. I, I can take some money to, um, you know, do a do a major car repair or something like that. And that, that's, that was, I was able to do that. So all those little things that, you know, were, that needed, you know, those life emergency type things, um, they were able to be taken care of as well as then, you know, if I grow it in the long term, maybe I can, maybe I can step away from work. That'd be amazing. No, I, I completely relate to that. I, early on, I just thought it was the thing you did. You know, if you have some money to save, you save because one day you need to retire. And, and I honestly didn't have any other motivations or goals. It's just, I don't know, I'll do the 10% that they always say to do and we'll just see what happens. So when did this change for you? When did you discover this whole movement? And we can talk about, we had a good offline discussion about what happens when you label something a movement, but <laughs> let's just call <laughs> it a movement for now. Um, what changed and, and how did you proceed from there? Yeah, well, fire and that, that sort of idea I think I always wanted to, and I'd said for a long time that I kind of want to, it'd be amazing to retire in your forties. Like that's, that's kind of, even before I'd heard of the concept of, of fire, that was something that I was really super interested in. Um, and I guess being somebody that loves climbing, you just always throughout my, my two, I I sort of had two main careers, like both a decade long. Um, I always took the maximum amount of leave and mm-hmm. <laughs> maximum amount of, of leave without pay. And I would spend months of every year traveling. And, and so it was always the goal really to I mean, do more of that, do, do less working and, and more climbing. So even before I had the label, um, you know, fire and, and the concept of, of that movement and what that meant, that retiring early, mm-hmm. um, I knew that that's kind of what I wanted for both myself and, and my wife. Like, let's be able to travel. Let's be able to do the things that we want to do um, and not spend however many hours a week, um, you know, sitting in a desk working. Well, how did you think you would achieve that before you came across this maybe more aggressive form of saving and investing? Yeah, I think, um, and maybe it was just uh, because I had been investing, um, 
you know, I think there was a there was a thought that okay, well, and and maybe we'll get into the concept of you know superannuation and four hundred one k that kind of that kind of thing. So that was always sitting there in the background. You know, that's a that's a, a the superannuation system is similar to your system of four hundred one k in the states, except for for us, it's it's mandatory for for the employer. So you know, we both had these growing. Um, superannuation balances, mm-hmm. as well as then we, we were both we were both investing, and I, I guess the thought was, if we're able to keep our expenses, even before sort of finding out that there might be this magical number that you could hit in your investments, which, upon hitting that number, and invested, you know, at let's say seven percent tracking the indexes, that, that that would you know essentially replace your paycheck. So I didn't have that concept, but I did have the the thought that you know you have a superannuation balance like a 401k balance that's sitting there that becomes accessible at 65 in Australia mm-hmm. so I really only need to um, build up enough of a cash nest egg to last from the age that we choose to retire until until 65 and then hopefully our superannuation balances have grown um, to the point where they'll, they'll take us from 65 until until the day that we die mm. so that was that sort of idea even though I didn't have the fire framework around it and that helps me a lot so anytime I can get something that's like a framework or um, yeah, you know the labels the actual terms and the framework helps me and my my personality a lot so as soon as I found that and I can't even remember when that was now maybe it was six you know five six years ago um, that helped once I did find it it helped solidify a lot of those more nebulous thoughts that I had I, I was able to just go okay well, let's see with what I have does the fire framework sort of and the calculators and all of that kind of thing, does that go down that that sort of rabbit hole? Are we in a good position? Are the things that I've been thinking for 20 years, are they kind of right? Are we on the path? And it, you know, it turns out that yeah, we're on the path, you know, we're we're where we need to be. And and almost through no fault of mine, I've kind kind of been doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, it's really not that different from just standard passive investing. It's just I think maybe there's a little bit more of a zealous approach to it of we're going to put more money into this. We're going to maybe embrace more frugality and save a little bit more and invest a little bit more because I agree, I wasn't doing anything inherently that different. I was maybe doing a little bit more individual stock picking, trying to maybe get lucky with a little guy here or there. Um, But I was largely index investing and just not putting as much money to it as I did later. Okay, yeah, yeah, Yeah. I understand. And And I think when I look back, there were times where I was more zealous with it and times where I was 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 less due to, you know, maybe there was more expenses in in life for what it, for whatever sure. reason, and yeah. so we pulled back on the investing. And then there was other times where we had more, uh, or we could invest more, and and we did we did do it. And we didn't. Um, I mean, as things turned out, as we were approaching, you know, we're getting closer to our number. We haven't really changed, haven't really dropped the clutch on it and gone harder. We've more more so just sort of stick to the plan, just keep doing what we're doing because we know that. We're going to get there, and it's going to be suitable for our timeframes. So I think a lot of people, the race to the end mm, um, yes. <laughs> yes. is a is a true race because, for example, uh, work is really terrible, or uh, you know, there's other things in life that uh, are very pressing. For us, that's not the case. You know, um, we can see that finish line, and but we're really happy with what we're doing, um, and it feels right to be sort of doing it at this pace. So, yeah. For us, we kind of cottoned on to just, we were kind of lucky. We've been doing it. The, the, and I suppose the major change for us would be a bit like you said, moving things into sort of a more risk averse strategy of a heavy focus on 
index tracking ETFs as opposed to um, you know previously in my investing career and particularly before ETFs were available in Australia it was all um, you know what you'd call mutual funds mm-hmm. um, and they're not necessarily they don't necessarily tr- um, track the indexes too well they're often um, you know sector specific or you know it could be a biotechnology fund or it could be you know something like that that's sure. going to be very sort of um, niche um, which is not really that's great if biotechnology does really well. I remember, I remember inv- investing in biotechnology in like the 90s. It should have made heaps of money and it just didn't. It, it lost me lots of money. I don't know why. Uh, biotech's going really good. Why didn't that fund do well? No, it just didn't. Things change. Um, that's right. Yep. So, um, yeah. Well, I failed to mention up to this point that we've done a written interview before and I'll have a link in the show notes for that. And there you talked more about your career. So let's maybe back up a second and talk about, because all you're saying sounds very healthy, right? That you're not in a hurry. You're not, like, I was in a hurry. I mean, I've tried to be as clear as I can about this, and I don't think it was a healthy thing. I wanted to hurry up and get there, and lo and behold, things aren't always as you anticipate. Um, so what is it you're doing now and maybe what you did in the past that makes you feel content, like you've got a decent balance with career? And maybe this is something for people to consider as well, um, you know, with this 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 rush to this rush to retire or, or, or rush to hit that fire number that is the you know the end of the race. Uh, I think it's really important because if someone was sitting down and they had um, you know virtually sort of no real investments and minimal savings, if they did those calculations, that could seem like you know the amount that you would have to save is basically impossibly far away. Mm-hmm. So you know maybe don't even don't even start, don't even make any changes because it's just impossible. And I like that, that attitude. Um, I can, I can imagine that that's how I would feel if I was in that position. So there's things, I think there's a lot of milestone things that you can do along the way, um, that improve life quality. And you could sit down and figure out what that is for you. But like, like a great example would be leaving a career, uh, or leaving a job where you don't feel your skills are particularly well suited, um, you know, where you can, you're not particularly adding uh, a lot of value. You don't particularly enjoy it. Maybe there's, um, you know, leaving that position, I think is, is really important for people. Um, even if they don't necessarily know where they might land it, for me, I, I left a career where it was almost from one extreme to the other between my two my two different careers one was in a large corporation where i was a specialist uh the other was a small you know what's what almost a startup um where i had to be an extreme generalist and i didn't necessarily know what, which of those i was better suited for until <laughs> until i left the first one and realized oh if i had have stayed there um you know i've got friends that are still working in that same team um today you know, another decade on and they're doing really well, but if and I could have been stuck there as well, but I wouldn't have been doing really well because it's against my nature. So making those changes to try to improve life quality along the way um, is really important. Another one would be the fact that in my in my second career, I architected. Eventually, after some years, I managed to architect my job to 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 leave the the capital city where you know the business was based and to essentially work from home in a in a you know one of the best climbing areas in Australia, so that 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 change um, and to, to remote work was a huge um, improvement to life quality, um, and so doing these little things with your career over time, 
um, to improve the way. And, you know, another key one that a lot of people are doing is, um, you know, maybe it's moving to a four-day work week or mm-hmm. maybe it's, you know, negotiating more lead. It's ne- it's almost never salary. That's the thing. Salary, you know, more salary is great. To a um, point. Yeah. It, it is, it's good, but it's almost never the thing that is true, um, you know, brings brings true happiness or right. brings a true improvement to, to the quality of your life. It's always, it's always those other things. So looking for ways to do that, uh, I think is super important. And I did manage to do that. And I think that that was that making those changes were the things that allowed me to stay um, as long as I have doing what I'm doing, even though the work itself can be extremely hard and extremely stressful. Um, and I wouldn't be able to, wouldn't have been able to do that without making those small changes along the way. And you moved from was it Sydney to you're in Blackheath now, right? Yeah, yeah. Near so I, I live near near Sydney here in the in the mountains in, uh-huh. in the Blue Mountains. And I, I previous to that, uh, I was based in Brisbane. Brisbane, which is sort okay. of yeah, 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 sort of up up the coast, uh, quite a long quite a long way away where the business was was based. And so I guess this is where I've struggled. I totally agree that if you're in a bad job that's not suited to your skill set or to your personality, that you should find a different line of work. But I, in particular, am very hard headed. And I don't like to quit things that I've begun. And only in hindsight do I usually realize that, man, that was not a good job for me. I just thought that work's supposed to be work. So where do you find, because I don't want to instill this idea that we should just walk away from challenges, right? And that if it's hard, you need to go find something else that's easy. And I don't, of course, that's not what you're saying. But for someone like me, who's kind of hard-headed and is just going to just grind through things, how do you find that balance and know real time that, man, this is not suited for me and I'm not going to flourish here? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, you know, I essentially, I think it, it can take an external fact, you know, it's, it takes an external force sometimes to, to, to make that for you. So I was fired from my, um, oh, well, that's you know, from one. my, yeah. so that was, that's an external <laughs> force. Um, that, that, you know, and, I wouldn't have, well, I, I probably would, I'm trying to think back. It's hard to say what you wouldn't or wouldn't have done, um, you know, 15, 15 years ago or whatever. But yeah, I, I might not have made that decision if it hadn't, be, hadn't been forced upon me. So I, whereas I know other people, they're really good um, at sort of seeing that within themselves. Um, and I think ultimately it's that thing around trying to understand where you are adding value. Um, Mm -hmm. so, and and where you could be adding more value. So for example, um, we, you know, I, I regularly, um, sort of every, what is it? Every couple of months we send out a a survey to staff that asks the question, I am able to use my strengths every day at work and they have to rate, you know, on a, on a, on a Likert scale, Mm -hmm. um, from sort of one through five, if they're able to do that or not. That to me is a really important one. Like if you're thinking, I'm going into this job and I can only use a, a tiny ability, you know, tiny, a tiny sliver of my overall ability um, uh, to provide value in this job. That is a, you know, that's a good thing to think about, I think. And if, you know, for me in my current job, I'm able to kind of give nearly all the things that I'm really good at, I'm able to provide that into, you know, the, the job has enough scope uh, to allow me to do that. So I think, wow, there's probably nowhere else that I could be where I could give um, all of these facets of my skill set in, into the job. So I think that's something to think about. Um, you know, could you be providing, you know, if you're amazing, uh, 
you know, in these certain areas, but you don't get to use them um, at all in your job, I think that might be, you know, that's an indicator. Mm-hmm. Maybe if it's not too much of a personal question, did your termination at that early job, was that a result of just, I don't know, poor performance as a result of not being in a well-aligned job? I mean, was it something like that or was it just a total layoff or what was it? It was essentially a lay- they were they were downsizing staff significantly, so they were looking okay. for all any any and all uh, options to to remove to remove staff that they you know to to decrease headcount. That was that was basically the the long and the short of it. But in saying that, like if I was if I was an even better performer, chances are I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have been targeted. And I think hmm. that that yeah. really came down to yeah. Um, not being able to use all of my skills, you know, it was a it was a specialist job, um, and so there'll always be um, there'll always be better specialists, um, I think. And I think if you know, it's just it depends on your personality type. You can be someone that's amazing at one thing, um, or pretty good at a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know at that stage that I could be pretty good at a whole bunch of things. I thought, um, you know, sitting in a job. Um, of a, of a team, you know, of a lot of very, very small cogs in the machine that have to work, um, all, you know, and spin around, but it, with a very, very narrow focus, that's, that was my whole environment was doing this very, very specific type of work. And there were people there, you know, I was probably the worst person in the team. Um, and I just thought I was a terrible, terrible worker. Um, you know, the work was always done, but it wasn't as fast as everybody else. It might not have been as good as everybody else. Um, and I just thought, yeah, it was a super, you know, it was a crisis of confidence, um, and it wasn't until, you know, the situation plucked me out and dumped me into a, you know, essentially a startup where my generalist skills could actually start shining and people said, oh my God, like, this is so amazing. You're doing the work of, you know, seven, seven people at the moment because I could. And that was easy for me because of my personality and my skill set um, that I felt like, oh, suddenly I found my home. Oh, this is great. Um, and I wouldn't have even known to look for that. I wouldn't have even known that that kind of job existed. And that's the thing today, you know, I'm talking to friends, kids and things like that, and they're figuring out what they want to do for college. Half the time, the job that you're going to go for um, or you're going to find yourself in career-wise, it doesn't even exist yet. Um, <laughs> it's, so, it's so hard to study and it's so hard to, to go down, you know, and, and maybe spend five years of your life studying for something when chances are you're going to end up somewhere you you can't even envisage it it might not even have yet had a have a name yet you know that and is right particularly in the world of technology um now and the way things are yeah you high high likelihood that you're going to end up in a career that is super dissimilar to what you actually studied so yeah yeah and even if that career exists i mean i can attest i never in a million years thought i would do what i ended up doing as a career which was a geologist in oil and gas i mean i knew i'd be a geologist i was on that path but never in a million years that I'd end up in the corporate world. So absolutely. I mean, it's nice to have a focus in college, but I wouldn't be too focused. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, being that, you know, if you are that hard headed person, so if you study one thing, so I studied marine biology, um, I wanted to swim with fish. Uh, (laughs) we, We were on the great barrier reef, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's super great. I love fishing. Um, I love everything about the marine environment, but if I had have forced myself down a career in that space, I think it would have been one of those those things where that that hard headedness 
may have landed me somewhere just because just because I studied it, I must go and do that. Exactly. Um, it might have led me down a path that was actually, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now. I, it, it, life would look, you know, it'd be very different. And would it be fulfilling? Uh, or maybe, but maybe not. Um, so I think having some flexibility uh, in what you do and being open to opportunity um, and the different things that come across your path, I think is very uh, is very important. Being too hard headed, and I think climbers are hard headed because we project things. We we can <laughs> be on roots for yeah. roots and boulder problems for years and and be trying to do these things. But you know, just having an element of flexibility and walking away from something to 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 accept an opportunity that might be maybe outside your comfort zone. Those are so often the things that you look back at. Um, you know, there's unpredictable elements. You look back at them and go, mm, yeah. oh, that's that's so amazing that that happened. I could have never predicted that. And that was the best thing that could have happened to me. There's a bit of a sunk cost fallacy in thinking that, well, I've done all this work. I've gotten this degree. I got to grind through this. So yeah, I appreciate that because you, at some point, it might be your best outcome to cut those ties and start on a new path because you didn't end up working in marine biology at all. Correct. I mean, you ended up in the IT world. Yeah, exactly. Because it was a very pragmatic decision, you know, when they're they're pumping out this, you know, certain amount of graduates a year, you know, hundred graduates, and there was at that time maybe there was five really good jobs, and and maybe I wasn't in the top five people, maybe I was in the top fifteen or something, and um, yeah, I just looked at it and went, it's 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 got to be pragmatic. You've got to look for a career where you can start earning some money. That was, you know, I knew that early on and for marine biology there was just it was a supply and demand issue heaps of supply um or heaps of demand for jobs really and not much supply um so i just chose to yeah chose to go on a tangential you know, a tangent of you know an area that was that i saw was a uh, was exploding which was you know the internet website development mm-hmm. um which was something i was kind of i had an interest in while i was at uni and and that led it, you know, led down a path. And maybe if I had have gone into, if I had have seen that four years earlier or something like that, maybe I would have chosen a different path at uni. But I don't regret, um, I don't regret that chain or, or that choice because the study was really interesting. So again, like going with your passions, yeah, I think is 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 super, yeah, is super important. So rather than grinding out based on, you know, based on a decision to, to be able to go with your passion. So my passion at that stage was actually website design and stuff like that, stuff mm-hmm. that was brand new. Um, that was super interesting to me at the time. And didn't you blame George from Seinfeld on the uh, marine biology uh, demand yeah, ex- problem? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Seinfeld, that was the, uh, yeah, that was the problem. Everyone knew what marine biology was after that episode. That's hilarious. Okay. So when you took this second job, you said you were essentially doing the work of seven people. You maybe you sounds quite busy. So where were you fitting in climbing? I mean, because you've been climbing for a long time, right? I mean, as long as you were doing this work. Yeah, absolutely. I was climbing before, um, you know, I started climbing at the end of high school. 94 is when I started. So when I, when I took on this job, I mean, and that's, that's another thing as well. So in the first job, again, it's these I said the first job was almost you know, polar opposite to the second. It was in so many ways. So in the first job, it was all about getting the work done but not putting too much of my passion and energy into the work because I was putting that passion and energy into rock climbing uh, and training, leaving exactly on the clock, you know, five o'clock on the dot, go mm-hmm. home, train, um, you know, 
every every day of every weekend out of the cliff, that kind of thing, and putting all you know, all of my energy into into climbing and then going back to work and doing just what I need to do to sort of tick the boxes. As I moved and shifted careers, um, it was really flipping that philosophy on its head. So the fact that I could put a huge amount of drive and energy and passion into this, you know, this startup business that we we'd created. Even if that meant, you know, late nights, I might have missed a training session, but I was still, I was still hammering climbing as hard as I could possibly go. And to be to be fair, I had always thought that if I was working really really hard at work, I wouldn't be able to 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 climb hard, mm-hmm. and that just wasn't true. So, putting, you know, I, I guess I had this, you know, this incorrect belief that you only have a certain amount of passion. And that can only go into these certain areas and then it runs out like, you know, like a glass of water and you just don't have any, any more. But I found that that really wasn't, wasn't true. I could have a huge amount of passion for the business and what we were doing in the job um, and putting in all of that extra effort into the job didn't really take away my passion for climbing, nor did it really take away my ability to climb hard or train or do the things that I wanted to do. Um, you had to be more focused um, just like I see, you know, for example, I don't have kids, but I see people with, you know, several kids and how much time that takes up in their lives. Mm, absolutely. Um, and yet they are still, um, able to do amazing things with their climbing and they're still able to fit in, uh, you know, it's just the way you organize your time. Um, and they're still able to achieve amazing things in climbing. So, um, and that's with so, so many more of their hours taken up. So it was the same for me in that second career, um, you know, I didn't have to sacrifice the career and putting energy into it because of climbing. I was able to have those two things. Um, and in, in a weird way, being more fulfilled and more happy in the job um, made me a better human being all around. Um, and so I, that then translates into, you know, the, the better you feel, the better you climb. Absolutely. Well. So Yeah. So that's what, that's what I found, which was, a again, I just – all these preconceived notions of what had to happen to be a good climber um, really got flipped on their heads. I agree. You know, when I'm involved in a work project that I'm feeling really passionate about, I think it's a healthy way to take mental energy into something else. And then when you come back to climbing or whatever your pursuit may be, piano playing, whatever, you come fresh and you're able to then devote energy to that, which now takes your attention away from the work you were doing. And then you can go back to the work fresh I mean, it can get into a cycle of getting more and more tired and less and less rested because they are both forms of work in a sense. I mean, you're a performance climber just like me. It's not always recreation. I think we would agree. I mean, it's work, but it's a different kind of work. For sure. Yep. And having those things and having them be complementary, um, you know, figuring out ways that they can be complementary, um, I think helps for longevity. And longevity for me, like so longevity in a in a if you jump, well, I don't know, maybe not necessarily. Maybe, maybe this is an old school way of thinking. I know people jump around jobs now like, uh, like anything. Mm-hmm. I, re- I, read a, I read a statistic yesterday that said um, that 50% of the people that were interviewed, in a, this was in Australia in a, in a PricewaterhouseCooper um, survey, 50% of people um, intended to leave their job within the next 12 months and of of the people that were interviewed, uh, if they had joined a job in the in the previous 
12 months. They intended to leave it within the next uh, 12 months. So, yeah. I don't think that's just Australia. No. Okay. No, that's yeah. interesting to know. Yeah, I think that the concept of high rotation in jobs now is is really a thing. That, it really and probably is. Uh, it was not so much, you know, the concept of, of sticking around and um, loyalty in a job was was very much probably 10 and 20 years ago um, compared to what it is today. But I don't even know where I was going there. Well, any <laughs> thoughts would, on why that is? Um, you know, I, I think the, the other thing that, that that same survey said is that um, so of the of the remaining 50%, they, a high percentage of those people wanted to stick around for more than more than five years. So I think what that is leading to is is people that are, are falling into either one or other of the camps. So they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're a, a person with really itchy feet that is wanting to, to jump around and, and, and maybe the jumping around is for, I think probably, and as somebody that hired a lot of people, you know, I, um, you know, we're currently a bit over 200 staff. I've done a lot of those hires. Um, it does ring true. The concept of, um, these, these hiring decisions tend to always look like they're kind of hit or miss. You either, you go through the process and you, you land on somebody that's a real hit and they stay with you for quite a while over five years potentially, and then other ones are misses and they, they seem like they don't want to stay. Even if the hiring went really well and they seemed like an ideal fit, they just choose to leave really quickly. So that does kind of ring true. And the why, I think it's because, and, and increasingly now since COVID, the, that concept of labor shortage and the fact that, you know, in the past, somebody's resume that had, um, you know, 12 months at a place, 18 months, and then another 12 months, and then 12 months, Maybe they wouldn't even get a look in. Mm-hmm. But now with the labor shortage, I guess people are, are looking at those resumes and going, well, okay, I guess they've had a lot of experience. I don't know how long we'll be able to keep them for, but uh, they look okay and they still get the, you know, they still get the interview. And if they interview well, maybe they get the, get the offer. Um, I think labor shortage has had, a big, has had a big role. And why people are doing it, I think the best way to, one of the best ways to, you know, increase your salary is by doing these. Yeah. Sort of, sort of sideways, you know, sideways and up jumps. You can often, you can often shortcut um, salary increases by jumping around jobs rather than actually, you know, grinding out in a single in a single position and getting internal promotions. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you, I don't know what you think. No, I do. Um, you know, it's funny. The last interview I just published with Joy and Tyler Black, we ended up talking about this at the end of the interview, and he seemed to be more on the side. I hope I'm characterizing his stance correctly of longevity. And it also sounds like you yourself benefited by longevity, if I'm not mischaracterizing your stance. I, yeah, I, I, I do agree. So, uh, you know, I only worked for, I worked for three companies in my 10 years in oil and gas. I left the first one probably a bit premature after two and a half years because I could get from, you know, the swamp in Houston to the mountains in Colorado. That was a lifestyle play, just like you've alluded to, you know, getting yourself where you can still have a career, but also um, be more involved with your passionate pursuits. And for me, it's it's being outside. It's being in the mountains. It's rock climbing. It's hiking. I couldn't do much of that in Houston. And were you able to to take a salary increase when you did that as well? Did I did change? against all odds. I was fully prepared to lose all kinds of money <laughs> to move there. And I thought I would because I thought it was more competitive to be there and they would pay you less. But mm. they actually gave me a raise and that was really cool. Now, from there, I was planning on staying at my next job as long as I possibly could. It was good enough. And I had this, you know, I discovered this fire path 
you know, I was hurry, 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 get there. I didn't want to shake the boat. You know, I was like, I got a good thing going here. And then I was actually laid off. Theoretically, I could have gone back to Houston. They were trying to reconsolidate back to the mothership in Houston. It was this Denver Bay, Houston based company. And I worked in Denver and I refused. And so I took a severance and then was able to come in with another company, which in two and a half years was bought out. Um, so I guess none of those I actually ever, the only one I really quit was to make the the move to Denver. The rest of them, I was prepared to stay there for a long time. And I, I personally find value in staying um, because you can develop a skill set. You can develop career capital that allows you to get more lifestyle flexibility that I think is really hard to build if you're bouncing a lot because they don't know you well enough. Absolutely. Yeah. And I tend to agree. And I guess, but I guess that's coming from that as a generalist in a, you know, I, for myself, I was able to leverage the fact that I knew, you know, I kind of felt like I knew everything about everything in the job, you know, mm-hmm. to all, all the facets, every, I felt like I could do basically everybody's job. Um, because when we started, it was just four people. Um, and I was doing all the jobs. <laughs> and so, and then when I hired and I hired and I hired and we, we got bigger and bigger and bigger, um, I was hiring for all those jobs, so I was often involved in training all those jobs. And and if there was ever you know something that went wrong, which it invariably that's what I don't know that's what jobs are. It's things going wrong and providing <laughs> yeah. solutions to those things. Um, it, I was always the person that people would go to to go, okay, how should we how should we attack this? How do we solve this problem? I wouldn't have been able to be in that position if I had just you know just bounced in. It, you, it takes six to 12 months to, to train somebody in most roles um, to get them actually providing value for you. There's a lot of expense in, in doing that training because you're taking other, other human resources off, off their jobs to, to train this new person. And so, you know, the concept of jumping around was always, and when people did jump around, it was always frustrating to, you know, to us as, as management that were hiring people. Um, and, and I think that's only getting you know that concept is only getting worse over time as people are as people are putting themselves in in positions to jump. But I think the jumpers they can only be successful, I would think, um, as more of that specialist. Um, so they're working in a very niche area. They they're going to get dropped in as a small cog in a machine, mm-hmm. um, just because of how long it takes to to truly build up. Um, you know the level the levels of sort of career capital that you that you need to. To, to be very well valued uh, in a company, which I think is, for me, was super important. So that ability to leverage leverage those skills. Well, as successful as this second stage of your career has become, I guess, what was your motivation if you achieve financial independence? Where would you find a balance between work and climbing and other passionate pursuits that you had before? Or would you want to take an extended sabbatical? Because you've also traveled for an extended period of time before. We can talk about that. So you obviously value that to some degree. What were the thoughts there? Yeah, I think the idea was to basically um, be in a position to to either down, you know, be able to train other people up, to be able to downscale um, my contribution because it was, you know, we've been working so hard for a decade. Um, didn't want to do it. Didn't want to do it forever. So like working harder than normal would mean that you'd be finishing up earlier than. Um, earlier than you know what is traditional in terms of, of retirement, and if it wasn't retirement, I mean, it might look like something else. It might be, might be a downscaling, might be mm-hmm. uh, you know just yeah, being able to scale back and, and take more of a 
um, oversight kind of role. But not necessarily sure and exactly what it looks like, but but to somehow downscale. Um, and like I said earlier, that that slight improvement to life quality with the decisions that you make regarding your career would be would be what we're kind of keen for. So at some point it'll be retirement, but when, when you know prior to that. Maybe it's some kind of downscaling. Maybe it's some, um, you know, taking another day off, or maybe it's some afternoons, or you know, some other thing that slightly uh, improves life quality. That's kind of the aim. Mm. Okay, mini retirements. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. What was that? That was in the four-hour work week, wasn't it? The mm. concept of a of a mini retirement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of mini retirements, in what was it, two thousand nine, I believe, you and your wife Sam took a year to travel internationally. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. So how did you carve that out? Well, that was the that time and we probably wouldn't have done it. It was that the it was the gap between the two careers. So um, you know, once I was booted from the the first career um a decade in, I was pretty honestly, I was pretty broken. Um because it came out of, you know, for me it kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. Even though I, I mentioned that probably I wasn't 100% suited for that first job, I still put, yeah, a decade's a decade of sure. work. You still put a lot into it. Um, and those, you know, the people that you work with, they're kind of, for, for better or worse, it's something like a family. And, well, and being laid off just sucks. It doesn't matter whether you wanted it or not. You still feel like you weren't wanted, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's not a good feeling. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I definitely took it personally. Um, yeah, and it was Sam that, that kind of said, okay, well, um, I think we need to do this. Um, I think we need to do this trip. You know, we, we, we talked about, we'd, we'd been doing trips, smaller trips, um, you know, regularly, but the concept of taking an entire year off and traveling, um, primarily to climb, I didn't think it was, you know, didn't think it was possible. And, and also it was, you know, need, a, need another job and should be looking for that and whatever. But yes, yeah, Sam really thought that it was going to be a way to kind of, hopefully fix her husband because I was, I was pretty broken. Um, and she was, yeah. And she was right. Like, I'm so, I'm so glad that like we did pursue that. And in saying that, you know, so that was, that was sort of 2009, 10, that was around that time where, you know, I already had at that time, you know, 10 years of investing. So we could, you know, that was, again, I would have never imagined that we would have, we would have done that, but because, you know, I think i said early on i was saving but i didn't know what i was saving for um but that saving sitting there meant that you know we had a budget we could actually take um we we had we were able to you know put all our stuff in storage and rent out rent out our house um you know which covered about half of the expenses of the of the trip but thank god you know maybe it being you know in another set of circumstances were that not the case maybe i would have you know immediately had to try and find another job without the clarity of that big break and because that's what that provided so it was an amazing trip for starters um you know we went um to to europe and we went to the states uh, and we went to, to asia um and just climbed for 12 months which was awesome um <laughs> got really really fit and really really weak um as you do on <laughs> sport yeah, climbing trips i understand um and that was amazing and really opened our eyes and was super, super good. And when we came back, that's what that trip provided more than anything was, was a, a clarity. And even when I came back, I still had no, still had no idea about what I wanted to do, but 
I was suddenly okay. I was okay with that concept, whereas previously I was not okay with that concept, that I didn't know what I wanted to do um, and I didn't know where to go or who I could ask. But, yeah, after the, you know, the break from work, it breaks you out of the, you know, the frog in the pot kind of scenario where the water temperature is just going up and up, but you just, you're just staying there and you don't know how bad it is until you're boiled. Um, yeah, that was like a hitting a hard reset button and it was probably the best thing we ever did. Well, it sounds like you have a positive narrative from it. I mean, did you struggle at all with this sense of not being productive, with not being a worker and, you know, in the hive? I mean, how did you feel just climbing for a year? Felt great. <laughs> <laughs> I bet everyone listening to this is just like, oh, what are you, what a crazy question. Of course, it's amazing. <laughs> and it, it, no, I think it, it was, and it was because, um, because we were traveling. Um, it might have felt different. If, for example, you, I'm going to take a year off and I'll just climb locally. I think that would be a whole different concept. But because um, travel in a way, I don't know if this is your experience, but it feels a little bit like work um, in that there's a lot of sort of admin and planning and execution um, and a lot of new weird things that are coming your way that you have to deal with. Um, So that, that challenge, travel is a challenge in the same way that work can be a challenge. And because of all of that, um, that sort of constant challenge of moving and uh, negotiate, you know, figuring out if the hire car is going to fit up that skinny street without like ripping the wing mirrors <laughs> off and like all, all those types of challenges that are constantly coming your way. It felt like, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have all the, you know, the sads of, you know, those, those negatives of, oh, I don't think, you know, I wasn't really thinking that much about work, which mm. was, I mean, I probably was in the first three months. Um, as I was still sort of like mentally healing. Um, but from then on, it was, it was great. And uh, for the first six months of that trip, I mean, that's the other thing. For the first six months, oh, we just climbed our arms off. By about the six-month mark, and as I was like walking up to Las Ventanas at Rodear to, to try Acrovita, the mm-hmm. 8A, again, um, <laughs> I think I, I was like, you know, begrudgingly kind of putting my knee bar pads on at the base of the route. It seems like, you're all right, come on, get psyched. And I'm like, I don't even want to be doing this. Just feels like, feels like work. And yes. she's like, oh, thank God, me too. Can we just leave? <laughs> I'm like, yes, we can. Um, and, you know, we got to that point where climbing suddenly after six months felt like a job um, and we just need, we needed, a, we needed a serious break. And we, we did, we took this quite large, you know, multi-week break in the middle of that trip, no climbing, just to, again, reset that um because climbing suddenly started to feel like work um what an amazing position to be in but yeah that's what happened that's when i know it's time for some sort of rest it's like when climbing starts to feel like work it's time to take a break absolutely yeah yep yeah and i think traveling internationally i think that would have been a very different experience you know because my big break from work where we just traveled and i theoretically was just climbing was just in the u.s it was not so different so unique as you know a multinational international trip would have been yeah exactly you didn't probably have all the you know the additional chat there would have been challenges but they would have felt like familiar challenges exactly um, rather than oh god i can't speak the language at all <laughs> exactly. and all i really need is like that croissant and uh <laughs> you know that thing of thing of sparkling water there but i have no idea how to do this <laughs> yeah and this was before google translate too so yeah yeah exactly yep you need to carry around books I remember traveling in those days. No, that's fun. How about maybe we 
shift gears back to this topic of superannuation because I kind of muffed that explanation in a recent Q&A. And so this is something, it's a term, it's an Australian term, correct? But I know this concept is broadly applicable to other countries outside of the US, Europe in particular. So how did you frame the ability to save for this thing to kick in? Maybe first let's begin with defining more specifically what superannuation is. I know you said it was similar to 401k. Yeah, so my, and, and I'm not um, totally across the the 401k, I, you know, as Australians, we mm-hmm. hear 401k and I, I, I imagine that that means, I can only imagine that that means that when you guys retire, the government gives you $401,000. Yeah, exa- right? Exactly. That's, that's exactly what it means. Yeah. No. Good. Okay. <laughs> it does not mean um, that, but yes, just right. for anyone who doesn't know. <laughs> so the superannuation, I think it's, it's, it's sort of, it shares some similarities, my understanding, um, what it is for people that don't know, and it's, it is broadly applicable in other countries. Um, it is a a bit like a pension plan that is mm-hmm. so when you start work and you, let's say uh, and then this can be even when you're pre uh, pre eighteen years of age in Australia um, as of today the employer must give and must provide ten point five percent of your uh, of your salary into let's call it a bucket called superannuation bucket that's locked away um, until you're you reach what they call the preservation age, which at the moment is, is 65. <laughs> That's, That's what they call it. Preservation yeah, yeah. age. That's where they just paint you in wax. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd never thought of it like that, but yeah, yeah. When you're ready for the wax museum, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll let you have your fun. So a little bit different uh, in a couple of respects. I, I think 401k isn't, isn't mandatory. It's what, is that right? And yeah, yeah, pretty much. Actually, many employers don't offer them at all. Although there are some, there are some changes happening that might make that a little bit more of a, I, I think it might improve a, a person's ability to get more contributions in a 401k in the future. But right now, the short answer is that no, it is not mandatory that employers provide that. Yeah. So we theoretically, as long as you're not a so this is for casual staff and, and full-time staff and part-time staff. It's it's for all all workers except for the only people that this doesn't apply to in Australia is if you uh, are like a contractor, you run your own business, you're doing your own thing, then it's not, you're essentially, you, you'd need to be contributing to your own superannuation and, and many people choose not to do that. That's um, the same here. Yeah. Okay. So theoretically then in Australia, the concept of FIRE means that you are you're saving, you already have, if you've done any work, you already have this bucket of money, but you can't, and unlike the States, I think with Roth conversions and things like that, that you have the ability to access, um, you know, your tax advantage. And that's the other thing, superannuation is taxed here at 15%, which is far, far less than um, most people's marginal tax mm, rate. Okay. So, any of the dollars that you that, are, that you know you're putting into your superannuation, your employer is putting in, and there's other things. So I, I mentioned that it was 10.5 percent of your salary. You also have the ability to uh, top that up every year to a certain amount. So, and that's you know people in Australia. If you're hearing this, you should be doing that. You should be you should be top trying to top off your your super um, every year if you can, because you're paying far less tax on those dollars when you go to, uh, you know, when you go to grab them out later. So it is, uh, it is a worthwhile thing to do. And I remember I didn't do that for many, 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 many years. <laughs> Not I wish, now looking, yeah. I'm looking back. I wish, I wish that I had of, it would have been a good thing to do, but, um, you know, 
in any case. So that's the concept of super. There is this bucket of money that's that's growing, and at sixty five, it'll become available to you. That's great. So, but a lot of the fire calculators and things that I had played with, um, they didn't necessarily have that kind of component built into them. They might have just been like, okay, well, what what age do you want to die? When do you want to retire? Um, and that was it. Whereas for Australia, it's like, okay, well, we have this money um, potentially that's going to be available at 65. So we really only need to worry about the period growing the second bucket of money um, that's available from when we choose to retire until 65. Now, in saying that, um, you know, I'm reading a lot in the media lately that people's superannuation balances um, are kind of insufficient to meet the needs of retirement incomes. So that's, mm. that's something else as well, figuring out whether you will have enough. And that's, um, you know, that's a question for you to either figure out or to talk to a financial advisor or something about, um, you know, based on, and that's the other thing in Australia, you have a lot of choice as to where that money is actually invested. So that's something else as well. A bit like, you know, choosing a mutual fund or choosing, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, there'll be either super low risk super um, or, you know, something that is that is far riskier and it just depends where you where you want to put it. I happen to have mine in something that is a essentially broad-based index tracking kind of vehicle because of that same methodology that I have for my other investments. It's you know it holds true for, for super as well. But even though there's not you know a hell of a lot in there now, it's still got 14, 15 years to to run. And so I'm expecting that to you know do pretty well over those 14 or 15 years. For the Australians that are curious, because I know I have actually a good amount of Australians that, turn, that tune into this podcast, what is your recommended broad-based index fund that you use that is Australian-based? So in Australia, they have what is called like a, you know, people say, oh, have you got a self-managed super fund? Um, that was something that came out um, some years ago that allowed people, particularly I think it was it was heavily used to allow people to use their superannuation to do things like um, and a, and a common one was to buy investment properties. Mm, yes. So people would, yeah. Do you, do you, does that uh, does that sort of work in the states as well? You could use your four hundred one k savings to. No, but I'm not surprised somebody would do that if you could. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that was that's pretty common. Now, uh, now I don't have a self managed super fund, but we do have a lot of choices to where we where we put things. And I happen to have this, and it won't it won't mean much to people, but essentially it is uh, it's a, it's a managed portfolio that is um, that that covers a, you know it contains a whole bunch of ETFs within it basically, mm-hmm. um, and it is set up primarily for superannuation, but not only for superannuation. So it's it's not as simple as a as an ETF like doing a, a direct ETF direct ETF buy because it is this managed portfolio that's run by a company, but it is it you know when I look at their uh, the, the objectives of that fund, it is essentially to return 7%, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, tracking across the various. And the good, why, why am I choosing that one as opposed to just picking, you know, so VTS, which is the VT Sachs um, kind of equivalent and, and, okay. and those types of ETS, why am I doing that? And the reason is because this particular managed portfolio um, includes within it a quarterly rebalancing function that happens. Mm. That they just do every quarter. That's nice. So, which is actually really nice. So you pay a little bit more in terms of the fee um, for that privilege, but it means that I don't have to sit there because you know I'm not going to touch this for another 15 years. They're going to do four times 15 
uh, worth of, of rebalances over that time. Gotcha. So I pay a little bit more for it, but yeah, that's that's the one I, I use. But there'd be lots of similar vehicles that you could you could pick. Okay, so if I were to summarize, it sounds like your superannuation is a bit of a hybrid between the American 401k and a pension. It's similar to the 401k in that you can't access it. I mean, we can access ours through Roth conversions, kind of tricks on the back end, or you can access it with penalty and tax. You can take a withdrawal in America, but you will be penalized for doing so. So it's not advised, but it is possible. But the difference is on the Australian side, the employers contribute, they have to contribute and they contribute quite a lot, right? 10.5%. So that's most of, of what Americans save, period. But their employer is already doing it for you in Australia, correct? Yeah, that's right. So that yep. would make it more of the pension style where you get this guaranteed payout. Exactly. And I think the, yeah, and the pension sits there as well. You know, there's a government, um, there's a government pension that, that sits there as well, mm. which from my understanding is, is kind of a separate system. Cause I think for the super, it can be, I think what happens is that people will typically, typically get to their preservation, you know, wax dipping <laughs> age. <laughs> and then they, uh, their fund, well, whatever's in there, will start paying out a certain amount, and mm-hmm. um, and and that will cover cover them. If it doesn't cover them, the pension sits there. And the, pe- the the key thing about the pension is that, or the thing that I think about is just that it it's not very much money for starters. It's it's kind of to stop people falling into complete poverty. Um, and the other thing is that it's means tested. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you have you know if you've got a bunch of superannuation sitting there, if you've got a bunch of money and assets, probably you're going to be ineligible for the pension anyway. Um, so I tend to for myself, it's just one of those things where I just imagine that it's not there, and I think that's a good way to you know if you have to rely on these you know it's the last resort yeah. um, type thing to stop you slipping into poverty. I'd really just I, I kind of want to just discount it and pretend that it's not there. Yes, and for Americans, that's how I view our social security plan. Like it is income that I probably will get. It may not be much. It almost certainly won't be enough to live off of because it's not enough for most people to live off of. So I'd rather just pretend it doesn't exist and it'll just be gravy on top when it comes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Hopefully that helps for both Americans and Australians and anyone in between, in between. So you've thought a lot about if you were to stop working, preserving your portfolio. I know that's something that's weighed on your mind, something that's obviously weighed on my mind, which gets into the topic of withdrawal rates. And so how have you thought about, you know, you've saved enough, let's just say if you were going to walk away from your job and you need to last, I don't know, 20 years or so to get to this superannuation kicks in. Yeah, how have you thought about that? Because there's often, you know, there's the widely touted 4% rule and all this stuff, but you only have a 20-year timeline, so that is probably even too aggressive for you. The various calculators and things that I've played with seem to indicate. I mean, it, it's it's nice to have that sort of to be in a position where you may have a buffer, you know, on what the what the number needs to be, or to be in a position where you know you could be conservative on the on the four mm-hmm. percent rule and still have it work out. That's where I would like to be. Um, that's where I'm, I'm imagining and hoping that things will will be for us. But the scary thing there, and I'd be interested to get your take on it as well, is that, I mean, I've always, you know, the, the kind of the thought here is have that engine of money that's sitting there and have it over a long term generating 7% with inflation acting at 3% and then you've got a withdrawal rate at 4%. That's how I 
kind of think about that. So it's like mm-hmm. four plus three, seven, it's generating that. You're going to lose some to inflation, but it's okay because it's going to be made up for and then that money's never going to run out. But it would be interesting to get your take on, you know, we're seeing at the moment is is kind of a hyperinflation yeah, you know, environment. Sure. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm always sitting there going, oh, man, if things are so many things uh, in the last little while have essentially, you know, doubled in price well that's not three percent um now we're in we're in big trouble if everything doubles in price um yeah how do you think about that i mean you're absolutely right it's a concern and thankfully it's baked into the model right because we have had inflation in the past the 70s and 80s in particular were high inflation times and and portfolios have obviously weathered that but it really depends on when it comes because you know for someone like me who, you know, my wife works now, so we're not really worrying about money. I mean, she makes enough money that we don't have to live off investments right now, which is fantastic. But if we were, it would be a little bit more concerned. Let's just say if we retired at the end of 2021, when the market was at an all-time high, and we had just enough to satisfy the 4% rule. Well, then very immediately, the market starts declining, and all of a sudden, your life costs more than 4% of your portfolio. So because you're starting to withdraw too heavily right at the beginning of your drawdowns, that kind of sets a path of these kind of compounding uh, negative pressure on your portfolio. Now, if that, came, if, that, if that came after 10 years of market growth, let's just say I retired in 20, 20, 2011 instead of 2021, well, now my portfolio is huge. And so if we start getting inflation and, and poor returns, uh, well, no big deal because I'm already at many multiples of my original portfolio. And so I can probably weather it pretty easily. But if you just retired and all of a sudden you're getting poor returns and all your stuff costs more money, man, I mean, that's why I think it's best to go with a lower withdrawal rate or just to be conservative about it. And so that was our approach, much to my wife's credit, because I probably stupidly would have walked away at around the 4% rule, knowing I'd probably make income somewhere, which is another option, of course. You can have income streams. But she was really conservative and wanted to go above and beyond that. And so our withdrawal rate was low enough that we could weather those sort of things early on. And so our withdrawal rate would obviously go up. It may creep north, but it probably wouldn't exceed 4% anytime soon. So that's maybe my short answer. It depends on when you get it, which is why it's called a sequence of return risk. If you get those poor returns early, it's going to impact you a lot more negatively than if they came 20 years into your retirement. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that just goes to show, um, you know, the concept of building a cushion mm-hmm. on, you know, your that hard number, that sort of perfect, maybe maybe don't quit right when you exactly. hit your number. Maybe exactly. you want that that little bit of a, of a cushion. And I think like it's pretty common in the space for people to talk about having between, you know, they sort of, so you have your, you have your invested funds, but, but also on top of that, having, you know, a cash bucket of say, let's say one to three years worth of expenses sitting there outside that. So that let's say you do have um, a year that really tanks your portfolio um, early on after you've just quit. Well, that's okay um, because you've got that buffer there in cash and maybe you'll take from the cash um, while things are, are not going particularly well and you'll look to refill the cash bucket later. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people say to hold only a small amount of cash. And again, this gets back to psychology for my wife. She really wanted that bigger buffer and we never really did utilize it in that way, but I think we easily could have. 
I, actually, we might have. We might have kind of started doing a hybrid withdrawal and cash model to kind of soften that withdrawal. I mean, but ultimately, you know, human behavior will change as well. I think for someone who retired on a bare bones 4% rule at the end of 2021, has already kind of started to scratch their head on longevity and maybe said, hey, you know, maybe I could make up a little bit of part-time work or <laughs> go pour some beers at the bar for fun. And that will obviously make a huge difference too. So it's just the more income you have, the more cash you have coming in, obviously the less you need to sell to fund your life. I think a lot of the models just assume you're just this robot and like, oh, I spend $40,000 inflation adjusted every year. But obviously that's not what happens. You know, you probably might travel a little less. More realistically, you would just look for income because you don't want to live a crimped lifestyle if you can help it. Yeah, and I guess that's a lot of that that concept of what people want to do uh, in retirement. You know, that concept of sort of a lean, uh, a lean fire where you scale things back on retirement versus, I guess, the opposite, which is you know, if you're scaling things up on retirement, doing a lot more spending, more mm-hmm. cash. Um, I guess we've the way we've thought about it is that we would, and I guess the way we've modelled it as well is that we stay kind of the the same. You know, I guess we we like our current level of, I guess, comfort and, mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah, that's just kind of the way, you know, and the amount of, for example, the things that, uh, things that we purchase and, and the categories of, of purchasing, um, you know, travel being one, groceries being another one that's an expensive category for us. Um, we like to eat good food. We like to travel. Um, we don't really want to crimp back on that stuff. So we want that to stay the same. So we've, I guess we've modeled it really similarly. Yeah, my wife was always like, why would I quit this great job just to, you know, feel like I need to go pick up some shifts at Starbucks or something just because I still want to eat decent food? And I'm in total agreement. I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose at that point. Yeah, and if you're doing something that you you really love, um, you know, whether you, a, I guess I've never really had that where it's like if they st- if you if money kept coming out of the the ATM, you never had to worry about that. It was just always going to be like that. But they stopped paying you at work. Would you still show up? Mm. That thought. I've never been there where I'm like, yeah, I definitely keep showing up. Uh, I was it's, not it's that way. Good. Yes, it not would, at my yeah, it's job. good. It's good, but uh, it's yeah, it's good, but it's not that good. Um, but some people are in that amazing position where they, you know, it's so fulfilling and it's it really, you know, it hits all of the, you know, you had a great post on. The, the four pillars for the meaningful life. And, you know, mm. if, if, if work can, um, you know, hit all of those pillars, you know, belonging, purpose, um, storytelling and transcendence work, you know, the right kind of work for the right person can hit all those pillars. And if it does, maybe you'd do it if, um, if they weren't paying you. Yeah. You probably don't call it work then, you call it something else. Yeah, I think those individuals are probably fairly rare that have all those things. I mean, at the end, I don't think there is much there aren't too many jobs that don't feel like work, at least some of the time, if not the majority of the time. But man, if you've got one of those jobs that feels mostly good, and that's where my wife landed. You know, she stepped away for a year and a half and she didn't like it. And she's like, you know what? My job was work, but I felt like I was part of something. I liked my team. I felt like I showed up and did something that people, you know, there was a value for. I got a paycheck with a number on it that said, here's what you're worth for doing this. That meant a lot for her. And I honestly did not appreciate that. I really didn't. I didn't know how much that meant to her until she walked away and was like right back to it in a year and a half later. Maybe she didn't realize as well what it meant to her until she mm-hmm. walked away uh, and felt the difference. Um, I, I think you sometimes you when you're just in something, it's uh, 
yeah, it's hard to recognize it until you shift the, you know, you shift the position, shift perspectives, and then realize, oh, wow, this was contributing far more to my, um, you know, concept of self-worth and my happiness than, than I would have ever appreciated, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of change. You know, if we can have those, those periods in our life that sort of force us to change our position or change what we're doing so we can kind of understand what is important. Um, so looking for opportunities to, to produce change rather than produce same, 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 where every, mm. every week is the same, every year is the same. If we can do things that, that provide change and inject change, I think that's, um, um, yeah, super, super important and mm. valuable. I like that. Can you tell me about this interesting interaction you had with, let's say, maybe an antagonistic party guest? Yeah, um, yeah, we were talking about that. I, I guess what what this comes down to is that not everybody is excited about the fire concept. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to as touch a, on this, this a, whole movement. As a, yeah, as as I am. So, yeah, God, when you if you're ever at a party and you you start talking about the fire movement, maybe don't use the term movement. People <laughs> think it's <laughs> people think it's a cult. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not a movement. Um, and maybe even the acronym is 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 bad as well. But Pretty catchy. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, talking talking with. Um, I think most people that I kind of speak to, and particularly if they're climbers, something the fire concept that sort of oh, I want to not be working forever and want to be able to pay my own bills and have that kind of work and um, want to be able to go climbing and not really show up for work like that. For most climbers, that's pretty. Sort of a no-brainer. Um, <laughs> people are pretty. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've, I, I, I got a lot of positivity. You know, when I was talking to a few friends and stuff about that. Um, most people think it's a sounds like a great thing to do, even if they're not necessarily in a position to to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, themselves in the in the next couple of years. But yeah, they're pretty pretty psyched on the concept. Um, but not everybody, <laughs> as it turns out. No. Yeah, yeah. Just getting into, and I, I guess I, I had mentioned to you that I had my first kind of. Um, fairly negative reaction, you know, from from somebody that I had had mentioned this to, sort of an acquaintance. Yeah, that sort of really went down the path of, and I guess, it, yeah, it'd be interesting to talk to you about any any negative, um, yeah, discussions that you've had with people because it really was. Uh, I knew I was on the back foot straight away, um, you know, and the things that you know I guess get raised are these concepts around. Well, you know, if you, you know, here's a big one. Well, you guys don't have kids, so of course you can do that. Mm, and, you know, yeah. um, well, we do, so we could never do that, and um, you know, couldn't even consider thinking about doing that. And even if I could, I wouldn't do it because you know I want to give my kids a a good life, and kids are expensive, and things that they want to do are expensive, and you know, I'd never never want to take away from their experiences by by doing that. Um, so that was that was number one, which, and of course, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that either everyone should do this or everyone should be interested and I wasn't saying wasn't 100% singing the praise I was literally just saying you know this is something that I'm sort of interested in I like the concept and something I'm kind of pursuing but yeah the fact that we don't have kids and 85% of people do well that was a that was a big one straight away have you have you found that that concept of of kids and yes absolutely i mean running this website i can't tell you how many times i've gotten emails from people saying, oh, you know, I liked your article. I agree with what you're saying, but because I have kids, you know, I can't do what you did. You don't have kids. So you, you know, it's a very common critique of a lot of people writing about this stuff. And of course I've tried to bring many people on 
this show with children, I always make a point of asking them how they're navigating this with children. Uh, the frugal professor who I've had on probably will have him on again. He has five kids. Um, he's almost financially independent. So obviously it's possible, but the knee jerk reaction is to be like, Oh, well, you know, you just have two incomes, no children. Of course you can save a bunch of money. And you just have to realign priorities and maybe kids aren't as expensive as people think. I mean, that's usually the two answers I receive. I'm also not a parent, so I can't pretend to talk intelligently about it. I think at the end of the day, it just changes the timeline. It's going to maybe be a little slower because you are going to obviously need to spend more money to raise and feed <laughs> more mouse. But it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just changes the, the outcome in terms of the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think so as well. And even if it's... um. I was so I was probably so caught up in in thinking positively about sort of you know where I was and sort of the things we had planned and um, those sort of fundamental notions about what I thought was was good about mm. about our plan and what we wanted to do that I fell into the trap of thinking that you know every everyone must feel this way exactly and I guess that and that that was a trap and so I learned something from that interaction probably more than I would have from all all of the other sort of positive interactions is that some people. This this whole concept, for any number of reasons, is one that they don't they don't see positively. You know, for any any number of reasons, but and they, they might be flawed reasons, um, or they might not be. So another thing that came up was, you know, well, you you know, realize if everybody did this, the economy would collapse. Mm. You know, there's not there's super conservative with your money. You're not spending anything. So if everyone was not spending anything, and and also if you're not contributing, so you're a you know, if we're retiring, let's say it's in our forties or in our fifties or something, and we've still got all these working years left, we should have been we should have been working because that's 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 helping the economy. We're skilled workers, um, you know, we've got good skill sets, and we should be contributing to the to the country's economy. And yet we're we're, we're aiming to um, to tap out early, and we're not doing our part. Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, man, you're absolutely right. I've encountered far more kind of, I don't know if I'd say outright negative, but at least dubious kind of vibes over the years since I first started discovering this and talking about it. And then after we kind of pulled the trigger and walked away from our corporate lives, frankly, some people, money is not a source of happiness for them. I think some people are just destined to struggle with their relationship with money. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think that, you know, maybe that's just learned behavior from parents or personality. I mean, that's a whole discussion on its own. I've just known people over the years, and I think we all know those people who just cannot handle money very well. So those people really don't want to hear about someone having enough money to retire early because that kind of throws back in the face, their face, that they're not good with money. And it just kind of feels like you're rubbing it in their nose. So that's one vibe I've picked up on. And then there's the other, like you're saying, is like, well, yeah, you're like 35 and you're just... You know, cause I really struggle with that. I don't, I don't introduce myself ever as being retired because I don't feel like I am, first of all. But I also don't want to set that image up in their mind. When I first moved here, I, you know, I didn't want to talk about this website because this is not something I really publicly discuss a whole lot because it does involve talking about money on the internet. And that's obviously some source of, you know, something I like to keep private. So then what do you tell people? Do you say you're a writer you know, it's all of a sudden like, what do you do? You know, people don't expect you to just say, oh, I'm retired. Because then they just assume you have a trust fund or something. I, I, to this day, you can tell I'm waffling on it right now. I still don't really know how to navigate this. And I, I too just assume that anyone who heard this would be super inspired and would want to start tomorrow on their own journey 
And sure, some people are, a lot of people are. I hear from them all the time and it warms my soul. But at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of, there's still a lot of uh, questions around it. And yeah, I think people just think you're not being part of the broader economy or you're just not, you're not synchronized with the rest of humanity in a way that makes them comfortable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, yeah, I, I've been waiting to, uh, in, one, in, in all of your episodes, I'm sort of waiting to hear because, you know, when I, when I finally uh, do sort of pull the trigger and I'm retired, I want to know what to tell people. And I still haven't heard the, the key. I just want the phrase. I want the thing oh my God. that makes people I mean, feel comfortable and I, that, that isn't I'm retired because it's not that. I don't want to say that. I want to say something else. And I haven't heard the cool key term <laughs> that I want to hear that helps me explain my situation. I, 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 don't, I don't have, have it. it for you, unfortunately. I, I do no, I have, have I have friends who have retired and they just introduce themselves as retired. And they get the expression you would expect people are shocked and people are like, what? Some people are like, damn, that's cool. And then some people are like, okay, anyway, who's this? I never was comfortable with that, like I said. So I now introduce myself with a very long-winded explanation. You're right though. Climbers never ask because they're like, you're available on a Wednesday. Great. I don't care why. Um, (laughs) It just, it doesn't come up. Like they're just like, yeah, whatever. You're, you're cool to climb. I'm cool to climb. Let's go climbing. But you're right. In the real world, it comes up far more often because that's the one thing everyone wants to ask. It's an easy, it's just like talking about the weather. Well, what do you do? Or especially when you move to somewhere new, they all want to know what brought you here. So it's an obvious question to ask. And I've struggled with it. So what I said, and I still say is, oh, I worked in the corporate world for a long time, was no longer inspired by that. I saved my money. So I'm giving myself some credit here for being a good saver. And I decided to take some time away and just kind of have an extended sabbatical. Now I say, for me in particular, I say I'm exploring writing, which is true. And I usually don't mention the website because I don't want people fishing around for that because that's just a different side of me. But I I just say I'm exploring writing. And But I'll be honest with you. I have been exploring writing a lot more in a professional way outside of this project because it would make me feel a lot better if I could walk up to somebody and say, I'm a writer because I am and I've got paid to be a writer. Like I've published things. And if people go and Google me, they'll find me. And I, you know, I feel like that's as shallow as it sounds. And I saying it out loud makes me uncomfortable. But my wife and I have talked about this a lot. It does make you feel like you're part of something if somebody's paying you for it. I can write all day for fun, but I don't know if it's as meaningful to me until someone's like, actually, you know what? You made a bar that is publishable that I actually want to put money into. I don't, you know, like I'm sitting here waffling on it right now. It's hard. It really is. So for me and my wife, it probably involves some sort of at least part-time professional pursuit, but that's what we need. Others may yeah. not. No, and that's, yeah, it might be the same. might be the same for me. I wonder if, um, yeah, if I could get paid to moonboard, <laughs> um, be well, a professional moonboarder. Again, it depends on who you ask. Like, you know, some people, if you said, hey, you know, I took time off from work, I saved some pennies and now I, or whatever you got, you may not have pennies in Australia. You saved whatever. Um, And you want to take some time off and pursue climbing because you're still young. I mean, I think a lot of people would understand that. But if you told them I'm done working forever, uh, then maybe people get a little more dubious, you know? Yeah, it'll be an interesting one to navigate. Something I think about a lot, actually. Uh, You know, I'm glad we're having the discussion because I... I have this discussion offline with friends all the time and most people are not so bold as to just say, I don't work anymore. It's usually just this long winded, just like I did this long winded. Well, I used to do this and now I'm kind of doing this and maybe one day I'll do this. 
Um, man, it's hard. I, that's, I was actually going to ask you, so I'm glad to hear you're struggling with it too. <laughs> on what you might do, you know? Maybe it's just, uh, yeah, I, work, uh, I just work from home. No one ever asks what, yeah. there's never a follow-up question to that, particularly since COVID. Oh yeah, I just work from home. That's pretty much what I say too. When I, when I first moved here, it's like, oh, where do you work in town? I'm like, oh, I work remotely. I don't, I'm not like going to work. I'm just here during the week. That's normal. Oh, that must be nice. Okay. Yeah. yeah when are you free to climb? Wednesday. <laughs> no, climbers very I mean, I, I usually don't hear the work question until I've climbed with somebody like four or five times. You know, then they finally are like in the car, like, so what do you do? <laughs> like, oh yeah, we should talk about that. Oh, great. No, that's interesting. Oh, unfortunately, I really don't have a solid answer, but I don't know. Maybe somebody else would come up with something too. It's just one of those things that society expects a nice clean answer. Like I'm a dentist, and they're like, okay, I know you now as the dentist but they don't know where to put a person who's just kind of pursuing fun, creative things. Um, and they've saved some money into, you know, it just doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the, there's so many negative connotations there uh, with things like, um, and this is something that's bigger in the States than in Australia. Oddly, I don't know why. Maybe, maybe it's just the term, but that, that concept of, um, thinking, Oh, trust fund. Exactly. You've just, you've just been given, this money and now you don't have to 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 work such a negative connotation on on that we don't have the concept of trust funds although the same thing must exist you know generational money yeah um, generational wealth yeah yeah exactly that you're just going to not need to work now because your parents have given you all this money um still you know a super negative connotation on on that um yeah so i can imagine that people don't want to be necessarily associated with that and People aren't going to be out there advertising either that concept or the, anything that looks remotely like that. Yeah, you know, and I think sometimes it's in my head. I think I'm maybe more apprehensive about my answer than people. Yeah, they're probably not even listening, honestly. You know, most people are so so concerned about getting their name right when they speak that they half are listening at anyone's response. So maybe they don't care as much as I think they do. Yeah, that might be right. That might be right. But you felt in this conversation with this person at the party, like you had to walk away. This was getting a little bit heated. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Um, and that was, again, I just, I put it back on myself, you know, uh, you know what, and I guess I thought about it a lot after, after the fact, because it was the first time I'd had such a kind of a negative reaction about, um, about it. I thought, oh, yeah, what did I, what did I do wrong there? What was, um, <laughs> where did, where did I, where did I misstep? Um, and then, but you know, with anything, often if if it's a re- extreme reaction, you know, some of that might fall to me, but some of that might fall to you know um, things that sit within that other person as well, things that I can't necessarily anticipate um, that might be you know, and things that I might not even know um, are going on with that person. So that's all, always the case when I you, know, when you have a, um, an altercation with somebody. You know, half the time you don't really understand all of the factors that that went into that. Um, so and to even to second guess them is almost not worth worrying about. There's something there. Uh, I don't know what it is, um, but it gave me a lot to think about. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it does for me too. And I think there's a lot of tendency for folks to say, oh, well, screw them, you know, for judging you. Who cares what people think? And that's, that's such an easy thing to say. And it's such another entirely to actually live in a life where you feel like a social outcast. Because at the end of the day, we're humans and we're social creatures. We want to feel like we're part of the herd. And this inherently does paint you as an outcast if the herd is largely going to work Monday through Friday and, you know, you're in sweatpants at 10 a.m. in your house. Like, and that's something that gives me a lot of pause too. And that's why 
I think my wife and I, after about three years of this, have shifted, honestly, into to a new phase of a career, if I'm going to be honest. It doesn't look like full-time work, and that's the beauty of it for me. I can work, but it's not full-time. It's on my own terms for now, and it still feels like I'm being productive. It gives me something to say I'm doing with my time, and I'm still having way more flexibility and way more fun than I did five years ago. So it feels like a win, but it takes some clever wordsmithing, that's for sure. Yeah, and even if people aren't in the same position as you, there's still sort of come back to that point. There's a lot of the things that you're kind of doing now uh, with the way that you're choosing to to kind of spend your time that people could be doing um, this year with some negotiations with their work. Mm-hmm. You know, they could be they could be along that path doing a lot of the same things by, you know, injecting. So you're actually injecting, you, you're essentially got free time and you're injecting some work into that free time in order to balance, um, you know, to balance your life in the way that Sounds is, crazy, right? You know, it, which is which is crazy, but people could be doing the same thing. They could be potentially injecting, finding ways to inject some more balance into their um, into their work schedules and, and, mm, and things like yeah. that, just by making some small changes and some. Um, and they could be approaching again, like approaching what we're trying to um, what we're trying to do. They could be coming at it from the the other way, you know, looking for ways to. And and look, even talking to my employees, like in things like performance reviews, what are people after? They're after they they want balance. Yeah, that's what they ultimately they that's what they want. And you know, it used to be work life balance, and now now that's a dirty a dirty term. It's right. now it's life it's life balance. Um, you know, if you talk to talk to the HR people, um, life balance. So work is just a part of your life. So how do you how do you find that balance? That's what everybody wants. So what are we doing to to move the needle a little bit in that direction? And I think the better you are at your job. Um, so by working harder, by being better at what you do, which I think is always a good pursuit. And as climbers, it's what we're trying to do most of the time. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get better. We're trying to tick that project. We're trying to improve ourselves. If we can take that, and that's why climbers, I always hire climbers as well. Um, climbers are awesome. They just have it built in to their mindset that that continual improvement is always a goal. So if you have that person in a, in a working environment, um, Chances are they're going to be looking for ways to improve things, 100%. looking for ways to to automate things, looking for ways to to do more with less. And if you can have that mindset um, in your in your work, you be, suddenly become more valuable, and suddenly you've got some leverage to be able to make some, um, you know, to be able to negotiate, to be able to make some changes that might improve your situation. And if people can do, you know, even make one small change this year to improve their situation, whether that's in a way that suits them. You know, it can't. It won't necessarily be that everyone goes to four days a week. Um, that might not be suitable, but it might be some other way. Um, it might be, yeah, I don't know. More vacation know time or a, exactly. a sabbatical yeah. of some sort. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, something along those lines that really, you know, fits in with their lifestyle. Then that is, that's that's part of this whole movement to me. Because it's not just about financial independence and retire early. Because retire early might, so many people that retire early end up going back to work. <laughs> so can we put? So can we all ultimately put that to the side and go? No, what is this actually about? Yes. It's about life improvement. Exactly. I'm glad you've focused on that. Yeah, my wife went back to 20 hours a week, so she didn't run back to full time work. She realized there were some, there weren't. It wasn't all roses from her previous career. So she's trying to find this balance between what she liked about the last year and a half and what she liked about her career prior to that. And that's what this affords you, literally. 
Yeah, yeah, and we we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait until we hit our our fire number. That's mm, the, that's, that's true. The thing. We can we can start making changes today. And you should, because then you won't be in such a hurry to get there, like I was. Absolutely, yeah, and I think that's a you know that's a, a useful realization that because sometimes I think if you if you just started researching this uh, on your own, you might it, again it's that concept of wow, that's way too far away. I can't wait for that, or it'll never be me, or I'll never make it there, or whatever. But I think the other side of that coin is no, no, you can be making changes today that that really are getting you, and that's the that's the other thing as well. And I'm not sure whether you've thought about this concept, but you know, life choices thing where you could, so here's one example. You could choose to have fun in your twenties with the concept of, okay, I'll I'll work hard later. So Mm -hmm. I'll climb hard in my twenties, let's say, um, because that's when I'm going to climb my best and then I can work hard later and that'll be fine. Or you could work hard in your twenties with the thought that I'll have fun later and I'll do stuff, um, you know, after, afterwards, that's fine. I'll make my money early and then I'll retire early. That's mm-hmm. kind of the, the fire um, concept generally. I guess what I'd say is you can do either of those things, but whatever methodology that you use, just be making sure that you're having fun along the way. Don't defer. And sometimes I think the fire concept, if you read about it, is this deferral of, you know, delayed gratification is deferral of fun until, okay, we're going to just really put it in and then and then we'll be retired and it'll be great. No, I think that's a trap. I think that's I think that's a trick. You've got to figure out Whichever way you want to architect your life, you have to be having the fun along the way. And for you climbing, it's I think it's a you know it's a fallacy to be thinking, okay, well once I've got a lot more free time, then I'll be able to climb better. My experience is that that is not true. So I climbed my best when I was you know uh, in the in the midst of you know at thirty two when I was in the midst of all of this madness of career. That's actually when I climbed my best. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, you're um, when you're stuck at a desk, you you've got a boiling energy you're hungry to get for out, it. yeah, and you are so hungry, and so you put in so much effort. When you've got more time, and there's been times in my career where I've had more time. You know, there's been times where I've negotiated to, um, you know, have a have a couple of days off here and there over a, over a period of time or whatever. Um, when I've had more time, I haven't necessarily used that time particularly well, and you. you you know, for example, if you only have the weekends to go out and the weather is not particularly good, guess what? You go out yep. um, and you go out consistently, you go out regularly and it doesn't matter what happens. And if it's, you know, if it's humid, you get on the route anyway. Um, but when you've got more time, you're like, eh, 70% humidity. Yeah, I might just wait. Yep. <laughs> and of course you don't go out and it, that that has an effect. So this, this concept of like more time means better climbing, it's not. For me, I don't believe that it's true. I agree. And we should be looking for ways to to, to maximize the enjoyment of, of today uh, rather than thinking that at some point in the future things will be better. Good point. That was a good one. I like that. Well, let's arc this thing. You've got some good notes we took about the best thing that you can do to improve your financial position. And so that could be at any stage of your life, right? That could be that 20-year-old new to a job, wanting to climb, but maybe kind of focused on building a nest egg of some sort. Any thoughts off the top of your head? For me, I think the you I'm sure it was I'm sure it was the Clipping Chains podcast. I'm sure that's what it was that you said that you track your spending oh, yeah. each month. I beat that table all the time. All right. So like when I started, and I haven't, 
I have to admit, like that's, you think I've been doing this sort of investing thing for a long time, but I had not been, I had not been tracking my spend. I was a bit afraid to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Really. And as you should be, it's an, it's an eye opener. Yeah. And when I brought it up with my wife that, cause you know, we, you know, we, share everything it's a shared finance situation a marriage um at least ours is so mm-hmm. it's that we were gonna you know we thought, I thought this would be a good idea we sit down and we would do this you know figure out what our spending categories would be and we're going to sit down and do it every month I, I thought okay well i guess you do this in order to figure out what your fire number is because essentially you're fight for people that aren't across it generally you're the number that you you have to save in order to be considered financially independent is somewhere around that sort of 25 times your an, annual spending. And the only way to figure out what your annual spending is, is to start tracking it every month. And you probably want like 12 months at least, um, but, and then just continue that over time. And so, because some of your, for example, some of your expenses only come in every quarter, Christmas can be expensive with give, you know, so it really does change month to month. So you want to do it for a, you know, for at least a year and then be looking at that. Um, as a sort of an average month and then multiply that out and figure out what your number is. And so we did that and I didn't, I, I thought, oh, we'll, we'll do it for at least a year. But then what we fit, we had this, like there was this ancillary side benefit of doing that. And I don't know whether you've come across this, but for us, I think that the pure, just the fact that you have to track doing that, um, it decreases your spending. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I talk about this all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like that. It's a hundred percent true. So what you measure, and I think it's got it's a it's a subconscious thing. So if so, one of our one of our columns is discretionary Lee, and one of the columns is discretionary Sam, and these are, <laughs> these are like random. These are our go on eBay and buy this thing that I that I see that I think I, I want. Now, because I ha- I know that all of those those things are, are going to be tallied up uh, in the spreadsheet for the month. I think it has a, a, a true subconscious impact on your spending. It really does decrease some of the frivolous things that you might otherwise spend, you don't spend. And it seems ridiculous. Like if someone's not doing this, they're like, oh, what, just tracking it is going to actually decrease your spending. That can't be right. I almost guarantee that it it's is true. right and it will decrease your spending. So if you're going to be decreasing your spending, that is a, that's massive. That's a massive part of what, you know, kind of, the fire concept is all about because it's not how much you make it really isn't it's about how much you spend so for me in terms of improving your financial position if you could just track your spending um which for us is a simple and some people like okay what do you mean track your spending okay it's as simple as this i log on to my like internet banking uh i click the month button and i go through all of the things and it says things like you know car tolls and um some eBay purchase and some other thing, and I go and I just drop them into each column of the spreadsheet, and then I have a little checkbox that says Lee done, and then Sam does the same thing for the month, and that's it. Hmm. So that's what we do. It's really simple, and it has ha- it has made a really big impact. So that would be the that would be the first thing. And well, thank you for the opportunity to market myself real quick because new subscribers to this newsletter get a free net worth and spending tracking spreadsheet. So there you go. If you want to track your spending, go ahead. Become a newsletter subscriber. Appreciate that. <laughs> Dovetailed. I love it. <laughs> Carry on. Once you've done that for, for a while, and I think I'd like doing that for six months or something, and then and then eventually 12 months, um, is going to give you, as soon as you multiply that out by, say, 25, you're going to have some 
There'll be the big number sitting there, right. of course. It's a big number. But having the number, that fire number, that, that financial independence number sitting there, even though if it might seem completely unattainable, is, is, is suddenly a tangible goal. Like I mm-hmm. said earlier in the interview that like a framework for me is super important. If I can overlay a framework on something, suddenly ah, it gives me, it really gives me a purpose. It gives me something to shoot for, a bit like a, it's a goal. It's sitting there. It's this thing that I know and I can, I can be looking at it and thinking about it and it, it's something to shoot for. Um, and I think as climbers, you know, we, we're, we're big on that. And I think if you do that from, from, from tracking spending to then understanding what that goal number might be, we have some kind of like, you know, it suddenly solidified the fact that, wow, this is what we're shooting for. And I said earlier that, you know, I'd started investing at an early age but didn't know what I was investing for. If I had have done this earlier, you know, I would have that frame I would have had that framework in place earlier. And maybe I would have been in a, you know, I would have been even more excited and and pushed a little bit harder. And I don't, I, you know, I'm I'm not really saying that I uh, you know, have any regrets on the way I've approached things, but I would have liked to know that number earlier. I mm-hmm. think that would have been helpful. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. The next thing that I would I would get people to think about if if they were saying okay well how can I improve you know my financial position is to just to think about the the concept of of leverage and, and what that might mean for you and so so I got you know some examples that kind of spring to mind would be you know because without leverage imagine we were just you you got you have your number now we talked about that we've got the number and we're just going to put spare dollars in a tin <laughs> and if we just put the spare dollars in a tin. It's just going to take an impossibly long time yeah. for you to hit your number. Never. Um, exactly. So you just so you need to figure out a way to sort of magically accelerate, um, you know, the, the whole process, and that's what leverage is all about. So financially, that's going to be. We already know. You you just say this in every episode. It's it's taking and investing in something that offers a return that is greater than inflation and then have this compounding over time. So mm-hmm. you you always tell us this and this is right. So financially that's that's the case we want to be doing that. But like we also need to be thinking about what else can we can we leverage? So as a as a worker, somebody that's, you know, in a business somewhere, you should be really thinking about how you could leverage your own the knowledge that you've got and also, you know, your work ethic. Um, if you go in and do the bare bones basic that the task requires um you are just there for the amount of hours you're supposed to be there and you clock off and you you add no more value you've pretty much to my mind you have no leverage in your job Mm -hmm. um but if you can do things suddenly if you can start doing things in your job that few others can do um you immediately have some leverage or if you work harder you choose to work harder you know you want to work harder than other people suddenly you have some some leverage uh, if you have some proprietary knowledge about um, the certain areas of the business that few people, um, few other people have, or you're able to fix problems that other people um, can't fix, all these things they all lead to you having some leverage, um, mm-hmm. some ability. Basically, because the way I always thought about it was that a salary f- for a position. So you'd write a pres- you know, as somebody that hires a lot of people, you write a position description and. If the person does all of those parts of the position description adequately, that is what the salary is for. So they get their salary at that point. Yes. Now, they're going to get it anyway. But if you can do um, things that are over and above what is sitting in your position description, and this is also just for people to know, this is a very good way to think about it come um, you know, performance review time, 
If you can demonstrate that you're offering a lot more value to the business than what is in your position description due to that leverage that we just talked about and the, the, you know, the special abilities or the special work ethic that you can bring to the position, you're in a really strong position to renegotiate on your salary. And if you can, you know, you can start to multiply that salary out by small amounts, um, this is leverage. And this is what you really want to do to start to try to fast track and accelerate the whole process. Um, and there's ways to do that in your performance review that, you know, you want to phrase it as a, as kind of a, you know, or present the negotiation. And this is not the place to talk about like what to do in a performance review, but you can present it. You have the opportunity to present it as a win-win. Yes. Um, rather than as some kind of ultimatum. Don't do that. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't put ultimatum. I, I, it's just, it's just poor practice. Um, when people come in aggressive in a, in a performance review, but you could, there's ways that you can, you should think about this, like, how can you prove that you're offering more value than what they're, they're paying for? Um, and that's leverage. So, and if you can do that um, in, your, in your job, you're suddenly on a fast track to, to reaching your number. What do you think about that? Well, and I think it's great. And it could be used, like we said earlier, maybe, not, maybe you're not interested in fast tracking to your number, but it's fast tracking those mini retirements or getting some sort of work-life balance that you gain through this career capital as well. So it could be used as a financial multiplier or it could be used as just a wellness multiplier for your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's almost more, yeah, more important. Yeah. But just to, yeah, figure out where, where your value, don't, don't underestimate your value. But at the same time, I think we, you know, we hear a lot these days about particularly millennials. There's a feeling of with employers that millennials have this um, air of entitlement, mm-hmm. so that they should walk into top level salaries, um, but they should be given, um, you know, uh, given promotions ahead of other. They just they want everything. That's what a lot of the media um, sure. uh, are putting out there at, at the moment. And I guess what I'd say is, um, it's kind, it's it's okay to have that entitlement, but you better be able to prove it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so, yeah, be, be prepared. Don't go into a, you know, be prepared and think about the value that you actually offer. Look at it in terms of your position description and, and show um, and prove and prove the value that you can, you can provide to the business. And if you can do that, I think that's, um, yeah, that's a way to put yourself in a really good position and ultimately, um, you know, use leverage to, um, to accelerate where, where you want to be and accelerate your career. Mm, well put. I agree. And last point would be basically... For, for me, the last thing that I would say is just start yesterday. So, <laughs> if you if you can't if you can't start yesterday, uh, start today. For, yeah, for goodness' sake, just really really get into it. And I think um, you know, look at the resources um, that Chad's got on on the blog and and in this mm-hmm. podcast about about investing because it's it's all there. And I think another one, if you if you don't have it already, Chad would be you know really breaking down in a in a way that you can put a big disclaimer saying I'm not a financial advisor, but something that to destigmatize the getting started process. So how would that look for, for people? Okay. You know, cause even people have come up to me saying, okay, well, I have some spare cash. Um, it sounds really good what you're saying, but like how, how, how would I, they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to start it. Um, you know, and that's things like, okay, well, great. That, how do I set up that brokerage account? Um, I don't know where to go. What website do I look at? Who do I call? What do I what do I do? I don't really want to use a financial advisor. I just want to do it myself. But how? Um, which which site should I go to? So that getting started process. Um, I think yeah. Look for look for resources there and make a start. No, absolutely, I agree. 
Yeah, I sh- I'm probably due on a real nuts and bolts kind of here's step one, how to get started. And then once you do get started, of course, you know, circling this back to the beginning of our conversation is is to know that, yeah, you know, fire bloggers always say the money returns 7% every year and everything will be great. Well, that is a long-term average. You know, you may have to weather some storms. I think it's fair to say the last year has been fairly stormy and that's all kind of normal parts of the cycle. I have no personal reason to believe that, you know, it's all doom and gloom from here. I think we'll return to good times and you'll be setting the stage for a lot of growth and a lot of opportunity in the future. Absolutely. And just remember that when people say long-term, it is actually, it is long-term. <laughs> it's like long-term. When, when you run your eye down the S&P 500 and you're seeing plus 26%, minus 22%, plus 4%, plus 15%, minus 37%. And that's what I'm literally doing that right now. But when I take the, <laughs> when I take the mouse and I run it down that column and I grab the, I grab the average and I see, average 9.16 for the yep. you know yeah. for the you know 15 plus years that I just selected randomly that's that's what it means to be a long term average and you you must there's no point going into this kind of concept thinking yep i understand that it's long term and yep i'm going to lock my money well you know essentially lock my money away um, and i know that it has to really be in there for a long time to to get that return only in three years to go, oh, I've thought of this other opportunity that's come up. And that's the other thing as well is that with more money comes more opportunity. Mm-hmm. And to understand that to, to stay the course, even though these other opportunities are presenting themselves to you, might be, you know, oh, someone has a real estate opportunity or someone has a business opportunity or this, this you know, this house upgrade opportunity or whatever the case may be is more opportunities will come to you the more money that you have sitting there and it's about avoiding that sticking to the plan avoiding that temptation um you know and staying the course over the long term that is really going to get you where you need to be great point no that's a really good one well is there anything we haven't discussed that you want to discuss today uh no i think that's feels like a lot. Well, it is a lot. We've covered a lot of ground here. Okay. As usual, let's finish with three books you'd recommend. All right. Well, the first one would be one that I mentioned earlier in, uh, in the interview, and that'd be the four hour work week, which is Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. Um, n- not everything in it is amazing, but I think if you, if you read that one, it just, it, it probably does highlight a couple of the a couple of the things that we've touched on, like even that, that concept of the mini retirement, you know, and, and some, I don't, for people that haven't read it, it's not necessarily about only working four hours a week, but like just, it, it probably um, prompts a few of those life improvement initiatives that mm-hmm. you can take with your career that I think are really important. Good. So that'd be the first one. The next one, I did, most of my reading is recreational. So I, I just read absolutely stacks of of sort of epic fantasy is kind of my my genre so i'll pick a fantasy one so it'll have to be one of the first books i ever read that started to get me into fantasy which was um the magician series by raymond e feast okay um so if you're looking to get into fantasy i think magician's a great place to start and the last one i want to give you a climbing guidebook Ooh, okay it's because it's actually (laughs) what i'm reading uh, at the minute which is it's called Leonidio and Kiparisi oh, by yes. Aris Theodoropoulos and Katie Roussos. Um, amazing. Aris and Katie do, I think they do the world's, and this is a big call, I think they do the world's best guidebooks. Wow. Um, 
So in terms of if you like a, a guidebook to flick through amazing like topo photos and climbing photos, uh, you want a visual feast as well as amazing descriptions and not just sort of a topo style. They do awesome guidebooks. And yeah, that's the one that's sitting on my on my coffee table at the moment that I'm flicking through. That's quite the endorsement. And I believe you were just there, correct? Yeah, we've been there, yeah, numerous, numerous times. And yeah, we'll we'll, we'll be there numerous times in the future as well. It's amazing. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Lee. This has been really engaging. I really appreciate it. We covered far more topics than I thought we would. Yeah, we were all over the place. Hopefully it was easy for people to follow. As we always are. Well, I thank you for your time. Thanks, Chad. Speak soon. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging in all the way to the end. To get in touch with Lee or to check out our first interview, which I recommend, I provided a number of links in your show notes or over at clippingchains.com. I want to remind you or let you know for the first time that I write a weekly newsletter that has really become popular in recent months. I put a lot of things in there that aren't deserving of their own post online, such as books I'm reading, various articles as it relates to personal finance or life, sometimes some music, sometimes not, a little bit of everything that keeps you on your toes. It is not just a notification of new posts. You don't need that. I want to add some flavor, and so you can get that there each week. Head on over, put in your email over at clippingchains.com. It is free. You can unsubscribe at any time. All right, guys, I hope you have a fantastic week. See you next time.